Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two Kwan. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who were very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate possible. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. Today, first up, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Then we've got Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. And then you've got myself, I'm Asib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So all four of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Okay, so holy shit, it has been an insane week. I've gotten so little sleep over the last like 72 hours. Um, so we're recording this on, I guess, uh, this is Tuesday morning, US time. I'm actually in the Middle East right now, so it's, it's Tuesday night for me. But um, we've just gone through one of the most intense periods of kind of bo- both macro generally, especially for those of us who are in the US and are dependent on the US banking system, but also for crypto, a whole lot of craziness has happened over the weekend. Um, so let's, 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 let's kind of start from the top and just recap for those of you who are asleep at the wheel or who don't really follow what's going on in crypto, um, the big story was the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. So I'm not going to reiterate everything that's happened. There's been a thousand explainers on Silicon Valley Bank, but just the very, very short version. Silicon Valley Bank is a big bank that, uh, not a, sorry, it's not a big bank. It's like a mid-sized bank. It's like the 16th, 15th biggest bank in the US. Um, but they bank a huge number of the startups that come out of Silicon Valley. So something like 50% of all startups and 50% of all companies that IPO uh, that are in the technology sector, bank with Silicon Valley Bank. So Silicon Valley Bank uh, ended up having a run in the bank on Thursday, such that the bank was taken over on Friday morning by FDIC. FDIC is basically uh, one of the regulators of banks. And they basically said, look, uh, you are now insolvent. The government is taking over the bank and we are going to run this thing going forward. Uh, this freaked out a huge number of people who are in the technology sector who realized that they no longer had access to their money. And uh, the assumption was going to be that uh, by Monday morning, uh, either one, the bank was going to be purchased, two, uh, the bank was going to be basically wound down, uh, or three, that uh, there was uh, going to be some kind of Fed backstop or FDIC backstopping the bank so that everyone's going to make their money, uh, everyone's going to get their money back, but nobody knew what was going to happen. And at the time, there didn't seem to be, at least on you know Friday, Saturday, not a lot of signaling from the Fed, from Treasury, or from the president that anything was going to happen, that this wasn't going to be just another bank wind down. Now, Silicon Valley Bank is the second largest bank failure in American history. Uh, it, is a, it was a massive bank with over $200 billion in deposits. Um, and the fact that they were involved in banking so many companies um, made them somewhat unique because over 90% of all of the uh, deposits at SVB, at Silicon Valley Bank, were uninsured meaning that FDIC, which normally insures $250,000 of all bank deposits, would basically insure almost nothing that would come out of SVB. And so if everybody at SVB was basically just like, hey, we're going to sell the bank, we'll see what we get back. The bank obviously had a lot of losses in their portfolio. Whatever we get on the bank is what you're going to get back. And so a huge number of startups, many of which are in the crypto sector, bank with SVB and basically no longer had access to their money, didn't know if they were going to make payroll, didn't know if they were going to, you know, have their have their uh, uh, their runway or their bankroll basically cut in in half or even less than that. Um, but it's not just startups; it's also big companies that happen to have a lot of money with SVB. Um, so, for one, uh, Circle. So Circle is uh, the company that that does USDC, which is one of the largest stablecoins in circulation. USDC, it turns out, one of the seven banks that they used was SVB. And SVB, they, uh, I think they announced on Saturday uh, that SVB held $3.3 billion of Circle deposits. And when people realized that 
USD, USDC, part of the USDC uh, reserves were held in SVB, all hell broke loose, and all of a sudden USDC depegged dramatically. It, it drove all the way down to 88 cents over the weekend as people were s- massive panic selling, trying to get out of USDC, moving into Tether, moving into Bitcoin and Ether. Um, and it caused a huge amount of mayhem in uh, on-chain, uh, on-chain activity, uh, which we'll, we'll get into uh, shortly. So just very quickly, just to end the, end the saga, on Monday, uh, basically on Sunday evening, the FDIC, Treasury, and the Fed uh, made a joint statement saying, hey, this is unacceptable. We are going to make sure that all Silicon Valley bank depositors are made whole. They also shut down Signature Bank, which is another transactional bank in crypto, which does uh, one of the other banks besides Silvergate that banked a lot of crypto companies. Uh, that was put into receivership on Sunday night. and uh, But they basically said, look, we're going to provide extra liquidity backstop for all banks, make sure the banking sector in the US is going to be okay, especially for midsize and regional banks, which were the primary... Uh, uh, the primary place where people were worried about their deposits. But, uh, and, and that caused USDC to eventually repeg and, and, and regain some confidence, but not after having, uh, it caused an enormous amount of thrash over the weekend and also raising expectations for uh, the Fed cutting interest rates sooner than otherwise expected. And so now the expectation for interest rates is much lower than what it was because we've seen you raise interest rates too much, guess what? Things break. And in this case, it was Silicon Valley Bank and a lot of the mid-sized banks in the US that broke. So that's a very, very quick summary of the high level of what happened over the weekend. Um, I want to dive into what happened with USDC. When USDC depegged, a huge amount of stuff broke. Uh, we saw a huge amount of DAI being minted, uh, a huge amount of uh, all the stable coins that were using USDC on the back end, such as MakerDAO and Frax, had huge issues, and they, they themselves depegged pretty dramatically over the weekend. What were you guys seeing in just all of the mayhem that was being caused on DeFi from USDC? losing the peg and, and going down to 88 cents. Well, I think there's a lot less that went wild in DeFi than went wild on exchanges and globally. So in comparison, the impact on DeFi, I think, was actually quite subtle and muted compared to the impact on the rest of the world. <laughs> um, the total amount of volume on exchanges, both you know centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges, trading USD coin went through the roof. Um, whether that was, you know, um, on centralized exchanges or, you know, curve plus, you know, swap volumes across the board were just wild because there's never been such a volatile moment for USD coin period, full stop. Um, Tether historically has depegged a few cents a couple times. Um, but because there were so many questions about the redeemability of USD coin, whether or not on Monday people are going to be able to redeem it to what potential losses it was exposed to, you know, with $3.3 billion of USD coins reserves at Silicon Valley Bank, the combination of fears about irredeemability plus, you know, solvency, plus uncertainty around how USD coin could be redeemed, whether it would be first come, first serve, and if there was losses, you know, the last ones out would eat it, or whether, you know, there would be something that would be proportioned across all users. All this uncertainty led to the price of it going far below any possible losses. You know, 88 cents, if you do the math, assumes more than the assets at Silicon Valley Bank are vaporized. It assumes, you know, roughly $5 billion of their reserves are um, missing. And the reaction was just crazy. So, you know, I I saw the biggest um, impact of this just being you know, frenetic trading of USD coin. I mean, I feel bad for everybody that sold at 88 cents or, you know, around that range. Um, But it was driven by a very rational fear. It was, I don't know if I'm going to get anything out of this, you know, whether I'm a US resident and I'm not going to be able to redeem it or whatever. Just, I want to get out what I can right now, right this second and worry about the rest later. And so the exchanges were the number one, you know, I think like focal point of the impact of this DPEG event. in. DeFi, you saw, you know, as we've started to talk about, you know, a number of systems have to react to an asset that was generally stable becoming unstable. Most of DeFi is set up on the expectation that assets are volatile um, and are designed around that accordingly. But, you know, I think the biggest impact actually comes from MakerDAO, where, you know, roughly like at this point, two thirds of the DAI supply comes from USD coin. So everyone's been talking about how USD coin depegged. Die depegged equally. 
DAI and USD coin were trading almost one to one the entire massive DPEG event because um, there was these flows where there's an arbitrage where you could take USD coin, put it into DAI, mint more DAI, and then sell that DAI for anything more than the USD coin was worth. And so during this DPEG event, the biggest you know DeFi impact had to have been on MakerDAO. Um, you know, I, I don't know who individual addresses are, but people on Twitter were saying that Justin Sun minted like a billion dollars worth of DAI <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> you know, but all of the spare capacity in the peg stability module um, to create DAI using USD coin was tapped out. And emergency proposals were very quickly created to change the way that DAI is created and redeemed um, in response to the DPEG event. And so, you know, MakerDAO had a massive event. Um, you know, exchanges like Uniswap and Curve were completely unaffected. Platforms like Compound took proactive steps. Um, USD coin was temporarily disabled um, for new users. Existing users could continue to use it, but as a preventative step, new users were no longer able to supply USD coin. Um, Ave, I believe, um, the was it Arbitrum or Optimism? One of the markets they basically like completely turned off, and you know all of these different systems had to account for this just like out of left field radical devaluation in what everyone considered stablecoin and how it would impact their systems. But frankly, I didn't see anything truly break um, in DeFi. You know, the most important thing in my mind is that even with this black swan of all black swans, USD coin, which everyone thought was stable, depegging massively in an incredibly short amount of time, 12% in minutes and hours, everything stood up um, pretty well. I didn't see any knock-on effects of the system failing as a result of USD coin depegging. So pretty impressive performance all around. It's important to understand the mechanism here because just because uh, Circle did not have access to $3 billion of deposits in and of itself should not have made USD coin DPEG, right? So if you remember, um, wh what was it? It was like th two, three years ago that Tether had this uh, crypto capital event where like crypto capital was some like payment processor or something in Europe that like stole their money or whatever. And they were, you know, I don't know, there was under some investigation, there was some weirdness, right? And they lost a bunch of money. And um, Tether didn't actually, uh, you know, Tether DPEG for a little while, but it was like fine after that. Um, and the reason why is that the thing that keeps USDC stable is not having reserves. The thing that keeps USDC stable is the arbitrage. And the thing that actually caused the DPEG was not that Circle like didn't have money, it was lost, SVB, blah, 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 whatever. The reason why it DPEG is that Coinbase decided to pause all conversion of USDC over the weekend. Now, the reason I suspect, and I, I don't know if they, they publicly have explained what, what exactly happened, but the reason why I suspect this took place was not because SVB was used to redeem USDC on weekends, but rather because there was so much demand for people to pull their money out that the only transactional network that still could support withdrawals, and this brings us to the other story about uh, you know the, the, two, the two banks that basically have gone down in the last week, the two banks that had 24-7 settlement for digital asset uh, uh, bank, uh, uh, customers were Silvergate, which had a 24-7 network called Sen, where you could basically settle with other people who are using Silvergate any time of the day, 24-7, just on their own ledger, right? This is, these are not 24-7 wires, because wires don't clear 24-7, but... Uh, you could just trade, you know, sort of swap balances on their ledger. Um, the other one was Signature. And Signature had a system called uh, Signet, or I guess still does, uh, a, a system called Signet, which allows you to trade 24-7 as well. Um, and so Silvergate was obviously shut down last week, which we talked about on the previous show uh, with, with Arthur Hayes. Um, and so with, with Silvergate down, it's only Signet that's left. And I have to assume that what happened was that they had so many redemption requests on Friday when seeing all the craziness going on with Silicon Valley Bank, that people were just trying to redeem, 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 redeem uh, USDC. And probably, you know, if they also had 3 billion on Signature, that 3 billion was probably completely burned through by the weekend. And so by Saturday, they're like, we have no more money left on Signet. We can't actually redeem anybody on Signet. You have to wait till Monday until we can wire you money on one of the other banks on which we still have cash. And so because of the loss of Silvergate, that is actually what probably indirectly caused this inability for them to redeem people and cause USDC to depeg, not actually, obviously Silicon Valley Bank triggered everyone's fear, but it was the, it was the inability to redeem because the vast majority of, um, you can see actually from the, through the weekend is that the, uh, the queued up redemptions for Circle actually were enough to be, to be redeemed by all of their cash reserves. 
Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on. I mean, in total, 3 billion USDC was redeemed, I think, from Friday through Sunday. And so it's exactly what you said, like the credit redeem, our loop is broken. And so everyone's looking for something else to flee to. You can't flee to USD. And so they're just going to all these other different assets, going to Tether, things like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't say DeFi actually was completely scot-free. There were certainly a couple incidents. There are a couple things to note um, here. The first thing to note is uh, native USDC doesn't exist on all chains. So some chains' uh, main form of USDC is synthetic USDC. And the synthetic and native US, the bridge USDC and synthetic USDC deviated quite a bit, which is in part, you know, don't worry, I didn't sleep all weekend because I was spending all this time trying to like, and we were spending a lot of time. Why did bridge USDC not DPEG equivalently with real USDC? I mean, I think people just lost confidence in the, the like liquidators weren't liquidating bridged USDC on some lending protocols because basically like Avalanche was the main one where we saw a lot of this, uh, this type of stuff where people were like, instead of liquidating whole positions, they were liquidating like very tiny chunks uh, repeatedly because no one wanted to take large size risk in uh, the synthetic because there wasn't as much liquidity for for going between the two. Like people pulled all their LP, like the LP shares were drained in a lot of different pools. So the liquidity. So you know, this is why we spent. I've spent all weekend. We, we, we you know, our team was really focused on uh, understanding like which protocols were really sensitive to all these LPs who are pulling all their USDC liquidity and bridged USDC liquidity from other chains. So. Avalanche, Arbitrum, Optimism obviously had these kind of like flight liquidity flight that sort of eventually came back by Monday morning. But there definitely were things, you know, Ethereum mainnet, you know, that is the gold standard. Like very few people pulled, right? Curve did $10 billion of volume or whatever. But off Ethereum mainnet, uh, things were very, very wild uh, in a way that I think reminded me a little bit of the Solana the the FTX day when like everything was depegging, um, no one wanted to hold any of the synthetics, and it turned out they were right then because after FTX, uh, it turned out that like a lot of synthetics were actually supposedly custodied by FTX, like the 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 Solana wrapped BTC, and then it turned out they they didn't exist, and so I think the market also had this huge getting spooked of the the wrapped and synthetic versions, and you just saw like liquidity vanish. Uh, much faster off Ethereum than on Ethereum, so there were there were definitely like these second order effects uh, that caused risk on some of these other chains to like really grow way faster than it did on Ethereum. Uh, Ethereum LPs actually were extremely profitable, but liquidity providers on other chains it was it was it was a very kind of harrowing weekend. Let's say I'm, I'm sure someone took some. There are some addresses that you can see that took some extreme losses that had some of the protocols had paused or, or done other things you might have they might not have so 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 I, I guess i would say it's a tale of two cities ethereum was uh you know very safe uh, but like everywhere else was like much more of a uh dog eat dog uh liquidity free like uh you know pogrom i don't know i don't know how else to describe it <laughs> it was it was violent it was violent like the yeah, mempools sounds- were violent off Ethereum. It sounds like pandemonium. I mean, we we also yeah. saw during that time was the incredible amount of on-chain activity of people just trying to run for the hills and get rid of their USDC. Um, a lot of people just wanted to take their USDC. People, a lot of people want to just take USDC off Ethereum and move it to Ethereum mainnet. You saw the bridge transactions all going one direction. Um, right. that, that's another thing that was interesting. So a lot of the liquidity that was on these other oh, chains, I see. It was just everyone just wanted to, to go. Mainnet. Everyone yeah. wanted to go back to Ethereum. Yeah, it, it, and that that caused this kind of panic on some of these other chains. That right, and probably you know, luckily, luck- quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a pretty uh, popular um, MEV transaction that was floating around, uh, where someone I think was trying to swap like a few mil USDC to USDT through like Kyber or one of the uh, sort of long tail aggregators, and. And they they fucked up one of the parameters in the swap, like the slippage or whatever, and they ended up losing almost all of their money um, because like they got you know sort of dust USDT in return. So people were kind of panicking and like just trying to market sell USDC. And then obviously when liquidity is drying up, fees are going up. That's kind of what you get. 
Yeah, like like in the in the Kyber case in particular, there was like one particular pool that was routed through that only had two dollars of liquidity, and so the the user took like a hundred almost hundred percent slippage, which is which is exactly what like eff- effectively like stuff like that. Uh, I think some of the aggregators indexing wasn't working correctly, um, it, and it was way worse off Ethereum mainnet. Uh, and so there was a ton of stuff that went wrong off Ethereum mainnet. So I, I, I wouldn't call this, I wouldn't give this an A plus. <laughs> Let's put that. One. Yeah, but I, I suppose like the closer to Ethereum mainnet, the more it was just like good old fashioned panicking, and um, just. But, tons but people and tons made of people a lot of money. Like, like think about Curve LPs. Curve LPs made out. Um, I think their nominal amount earned was like ten to twelve percent per day while you were. While it was depegged and it came back, so yeah, well, that's I, how much you made I, just holding from the from the bottom two. No, no, no. This is on top of that, yeah, right? Yeah, like no. it, it, I, I'm yeah, saying, they 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 did they they yeah, they, they the curve curve LPs did really well, um, yeah. but off Ethereum is not that's not the same story. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, so for us, the, you know, our experience of this whole drama was especially intense. Because Dragonfly, we actually bank with SVB. And so on Thursday, so, you know, zooming back from DeFi back to the normal world, on Thursday, so actually we had two banks. Our first bank was Silvergate and our second bank was SVB. And so on Monday, we were like, oh shit, Silvergate's going under. We should pull our money out. We pulled our money out successfully from Silvergate, put it all into SVB. And we're like, okay, phew, okay, SVB is like a real, you know, super legit bank. Like everything will be fine. And then Thursday, we start seeing this news that like, oh, SVB, there's like all these rumors about, oh, there's this phone call and the guy like kind of sound panicked and he didn't seem really great. Um, and people are saying like, oh, pull your money out of SVB. And I'm like, oh, that's crazy. It's SVB, you know, Silicon Valley Bank. Like what, what could possibly happen? And then as we see the stock starting to tank, we're like, oh shit, maybe we should take our money out. And so we start withdrawing all of our money on Thursday, trying to wire it out. And... Um, there was there was actually we didn't have any other banks set up because we just gotten off of Silvergate basically on Monday, so uh, trying to get the money into another bank like we just wasn't enough time to actually onboard anywhere. So we decided to pull all our money into Coinbase, and the idea was that we're going to pull our money into Coinbase. Coinbase uses a combination of banks like you know Silvergate, J.P. Morgan, um, Cross River, and uh, once we get our money into Coinbase, you know Coinbase isn't exactly a bank, but we could then convert it into USDC and then use that to continue our operations. <laughs> And so we were literally getting debanked uh, as a venture fund, and and our, our solution was literally to use stablecoins because we had no other we had no other realistic option to get back banks and to be able to like fund our ourselves. Um, but then, although we queued up the wires on Thursday, Friday the bank was put into receivership and the and the wires hadn't been processed yet. So we were basically in the same position as Circle, which is that we had queued up wires before the bank was taken over, but the bank but the wires weren't processed. So the whole weekend. I got like, you know, two hours of sleep a night. It was one of the most intense weekends of my life. I was just trying to figure out, are we going to get our money back as a fund? And so we were like, we didn't know we were going to make payroll. We didn't know if like we had lost LP money. It was a really fucking intense weekend. Um, so, you know, I, I think, look, either way, it was quite likely that something was going to happen. Either one, the Fed was going to bail things out or that there was going to be a buyer or that, you know, uh, or, or that they were going to uh, honor wires that, uh, took place before the, the bank was put into receivership, which apparently is common, although it's not guaranteed. Um, but either way, I mean, we were just kind of staring down the barrel of a gun uh, the whole weekend. So it, seeing all of that, also seeing USDC, you know, depegging and seeing all these things in DeFi, just like, you know, uh, all these assets drawing down. It was uh, it was one of these moments for me that I was just like, Jesus Christ, how much do we have to take <laughs> to be in this industry? Yeah, you know that meme where it's like it's like uh, uh, someone who's like, "Yeah, I've been trading two years in crypto; it hasn't aged me at all." And then it's like a picture of a really old person. I feel like yes. that after this weekend. <laughs> I do bit. too. I have to tell you, I do too. This felt even more different uh, to me than other market calamities in the past, where you know shit is going crazy. Because this isn't just like people's fund money. This isn't just like someone's portfolio going up and down. Like SVB deposits and USDC, like you know, these are funds that companies are using for operating expenses for payroll. Um, and so, you know, over the weekend, I just had people asking me, "Hey, what's happening with the coins?" It's like, 
hey, like this is the money that I'm using to run my startup. Like, what should I do with my corporate treasury? Do you have any banking suggestions? Should I like put it all into Ether because USDC is going to zero? It was like, it felt a lot more existential than I think some of the other uh, um, market events. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing that I observed was crypto people were obviously the most vocal on the internet about this thing because, you know, crypto people never give up a chance to be like, haha, the f- normal financial system sucks, right? But, uh, which, you know, whatever, it's just, I, I don't feel like anyone should, the, no one deserves a victory lap here, you know, it's like everyone lost, if we're being honest. Um, but the interesting thing I would say is like the people who in my mind were most affected, and this maybe gets to some of the political, observed political changes over the weekend, uh, were, were definitely like biotech companies, because SVB is actually very famous for doing biotech operational expense operational capital funding and a lot of biotech companies uh not only kept their money at svb but like the conditions for svb to v svb svb to give them loans was basically like oh you have to keep all your corporate treasury there then we'll give you these loans and they were sort of like double dipped uh and a lot of those people would have defaulted this monday morning um had had this not happened and that would have been that would have been much bigger than the tech stuff. I, I you know, I, I, I get the the New York Times wants to just like be like, oh, these tech bros got like a free bailout or whatever. But there's a lot of other industries, especially I think once Elizabeth Warren realized um, that SVB bought uh, Boston Private, which is like one of the biggest uh, credit um, uh, uh, sort of local banks in in the New England area that services biotech companies, for instance. Uh, she suddenly changed her tune about like, oh, like, yeah, kill this bank, kill this bank to like, oh, uh, actually, my constituents need to be saved as well. <laughs> I thought that was that was like that was one of the funnier things I saw this weekend. And that's why I think this like this like continuing narrative that, oh, it's like we saved the tech bros thing is like not realistically true. The problem is Silicon Valley Bank has the worst fucking name of any bank in history. I was like, their if name, only their we name were named just calls like, it. It's like, oh, if only we were named, you know, the Greater Bank of California, the, the bailout would have come like Friday evening, you know? But instead, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's like the whole weekend. I, I, I think people underestimate how many other industries they serve, like between yeah. wineries and biotech and stuff. And, and like, I just found the 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 way people were talking about it and using it to bully pulpit their their political thing a little bit wild and like just mis, misguided like not not actually looking well, at like, like the numbers it was finally on saturday that silicon valley figured out how to message cuz i feel like it was saturday that i started seeing like all these like threads of like I, you know i'm a i'm a i'm a, a founder like a young woman i started my first startup i finally got funded i've got 12 people working on this new like you know, better way to do logistics. And now none of us are going to make payroll. And, you know, these people have kids and they have this and they have that. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, now you finally grounded this in stories that people give a shit about rather than, you know, so, I mean, look, I, obviously I was very nervous, but I'm a VC who gives a shit about me. Like, you know, people, people are not going to, you're not going to resonate with like, okay, crypto startups and tech startups have a bunch of money there and, you know, okay, they have less money now, whatever, screw them. Um, but yeah, look, there, look there also, were, also, also the the VCs on Twitter were obscenely embarrassing. Like that that was just like that is true. The the David Sachs and and Cal Canis thing, I feel like is like just a, <laughs> quite You're embarrassing. On our sister podcast. <laughs> uh, I would just say it, it was just quite embarrassing to read some of that stuff. It, it shows how tone deaf people are. Uh, it, it did remind me a lot of two thousand eight, uh, <laughs> not in the good ways. And in spite of the fact that it was like a much more reasonable crisis than than what was written, so I really, yeah. I really hope that they they learn some lessons. You can tell that they're eating some humble pie right now, um, but we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like obviously at the at the center of this were you know a lot of startups, and we we chatted with a lot of folks in our portfolio who were very exposed if if uh, if SVB were to go down. So it, it's it's great that things normalized. Now, the other thing is that, you know, sort of, again, looking back over the week, so we lost Silvergate earlier in the week. Signature was taken over on, on uh, Sunday. And with, with Signature, Signature is the interesting one because there's now a lot of uh, rumor and innuendo going around that Signature was kind of a, kind of a hatchet job, is that actually Signature was, was maybe potentially fine. 
Uh, that Signature actually had enough liquidity to be able to meet all the redemptions that were coming in over the weekend. Signature was one of the banks that was under pressure earlier in the week in their stock price, along with First Republic and a few others. Um, but Signature, according to uh, Barney Frank, who's actually one of the co-authors of the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, he was on the board of Signature. And Barney Frank said in an interview that when uh, when the Department of Financial Services came in and took over the bank, um, they were they were they were initially not planning to take over the bank. They initially were like, um, eh, we're kind of watching, but we think that things are okay. We're going to go ahead and let you guys keep operating. And then midday, they sort of changed their mind and decided, never mind. Guess what? We're taking it over. We don't we don't trust you anymore. And um, so Barney Frank insinuated that he thinks the reason why Signature was shut down was to punish them for their crypto activity. And because Signature was so associated with crypto, even though if you recall a couple months, I think it was a couple months ago. Signature announced that they were going to be basically offboarding some of their crypto clients to reduce the um, the concentration of crypto deposits in the in the, in the bank. So now it's, it's it was reduced to something like twenty percent or less of their deposits were coming from crypto. So a majority of it was you know non crypto, which obviously crypto is a volatile depository base. Um, and so uh, you know Barney's claim is that hey, I think that they were coming after us because we're crypto. Uh, the New York Department of Financial Services denied this. Uh, they said, no, you know, the reason why we took it over is that we lost confidence in leadership. And their claim, I, I think it, it seems a little bit of he said, she said thing right now. They claim that we were asking them for real-time data. They they stopped providing it. We didn't have confidence that they actually had enough visibility into their own kind of withdrawal queue that was building up over the weekend. Um, and that was why we decided to take over the bank, just because like we just we just weren't sure that they actually can, were can confidently we, running it. Can, can, can we point out that it's a little bit ironic to say that a bank didn't give you real-time information about their withdrawal queue when a blockchain is literally designed to be a denial-of-service resistant way for you to get a queue of withdrawals? Just want to point Agreed. that out. Here, here. Iron, Every single such an irony. <laughs> like, there's an irony to that like statement you know, from the DFS. Every single DeFi protocol, you have radical transparency in, and any observer could look in real-time to see the health and the state. That is right. Well, apparently that was not true at Signature. According to the Department of Financial Services, we'll see what plays out because almost certainly there are going to be lawsuits over this one because, uh, you know, Signature was had pretty positive equity on Friday when markets closed. And um, I think the the if, if it is true that Signature was fine and they were put into receivership anyway, uh, you know, illegitimately, obviously, you know, now people are going to get... Uh, and, and also, I should say that the... Uh, uh, in the joint statement by Fed, FDIC, and Treasury, they also said that Signature depositors are going to be made whole, implying that Signature was also a failed bank. Um, if, in fact, Signature was fine, and they would be able to continue operating as a going concern, there's probably going to be lawsuits and all hell to raise about this. Uh, but now, the, I think that the seeds of the conspiracy have been sown. I think crypto is now convinced that uh, the banking regulators are, are, are coming after crypto banks. Um, do you guys think this is right? Do you think that this is overblown? What's your what's your read on the signature uh, situation? Here's my view in a non-conspiratorial sense. Um, the three banks closest to crypto are no longer in existence. And no other banks, regardless of the health of their balance sheet or systems, have gone under. And I think the root cause of all of these banks going under was they all – bought bonds at the wrong time. You know, all of them really had mark-to-market losses, which they didn't have to account for. And I think most likely every single bank is in one way or another in the same position where interest rates were low, they loaded up the asset side of their balance sheet with long bonds, and they bathed in them and took a horrible loss. It's just that these crypto banks are the ones that were forced to account for um, those assets through the withdrawal possibility. Most other banks are probably equally as insolvent or suffering from negative equity. They're just not forced to account for it. And, you know, I think, you know, from a non-conspiratorial sense, um, you know, I, I think it was easy for regulators to just say like, hey, you banks are going to have to be placed in a receivership because you're insolvent, whereas they could do that with any bank today for the most part. They could do that maybe not with, JP Morgan, but they could with probably any other regional bank or any other mid-sized bank in America. It's just that they chose, you know, in especially in the case of Signature Bank, to target institutions that they felt like targeting. And I will say, you know, to be to be fair, we did talk about this on last week's episode about the idea that like 
the the accounting standards for not even just uh, the bonds that they bought, but also the agency mortgage-backed securities and stuff, how those get marked is like a dark art. And somehow like the regulator, regulatory bodies have never just been like, hey, you just have to say what the price would be if you had to sell it right now. And we've never been able to agree on that since 2008 because the U.S. government doesn't want people dumping its bonds. And I, and I think like we're just like in this very weird limbo where like regulators never want to force mark to market, uh, which is never going to incentivize banks to actually do it, uh, except banks that have heavy transaction volume flow, e.g. blanks that service speculative uh, trading, which will well, so, always okay, have this one, kind of, one like, thing actually that, in, that, that one thing that Arthur claimed on the last show, which is which was actually incorrect, which as we we all learned this over the weekend that that Arthur claimed. He claimed, but by the way, he was mostly right about almost everything he said, but this one thing he got wrong, which is he said that uh, banks hide their mark-to-market losses in their hold-to-maturity portfolios, right? So when they buy bonds and they basically say, I'm going to hold this until, you know, if it's a 10-year bond, I'm going to hold it for all 10 years, um, that, you know, they basically do these, his claim is that they do these tricks, like hide it from on their books. Um, banks actually report all of this stuff. Like if you if you go read the 10K for, uh, or sorry, the 10K, what, what is it called? Uh, whatever the, I don't know what the fucking form is called. Whatever these things are called, uh, these these uh, quarterly disclosures from banks, they actually list all of the mark-to-market unrealized losses from their hold-to-maturity portfolio. Now, they don't list it in the overall equity of the bank, right? Because they haven't realized the loss. And so that's- Their an, earnings, a, there's don't, an account their earnings right? don't reflect Their earnings it. Yeah, don't yeah, reflect it, I mean. right? Their earnings don't reflect yeah. it. But it is basically like, you know, you add two numbers together and you have the mark-to-market losses, right? It's, it's, it's all reported there. So it's not but, a secret. But but I will say the following, which is that ETF uh, rebalancing rules and portfolio rules generally usually just are like, hey, I have a dividend. This is how much I'm going to rebalance. They're not like, hey, we're going to actually look at the unrealized earnings and construct our portfolio of like the K- KBW ETF or KBW index from that. And so there's actually this weird thing where people are forced buying without ever accounting for these losses. And that forced buying comes from the passive investment vehicles that just have to buy these stocks. So there's also this like very weird, it's a very tangled web where like the accounting is there, but it's not really like realized in some sense, like the financial instruments don't ever price it in. And that part I always personally have found a bit sad. Right. No, that, that that's true. That's true. But that should get arbed away, right? Like people should ultimately, like if they actually understand the, the true value of the, of the asset, relative to like the forced buying, like markets should figure all that shit out. Can you explain Dogecoin to me? <laughs> that That's going to be the, the next show is going to be, I explain Dogecoin to Tarun while we're both on <laughs> huge amounts of acid. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I got to say, number one I, that will be on the episode way, if we do that. The, the, uh, the, the, the number one thing I, I learned in recent weeks that I, I never understood, there was this, there's a dog coin which is extremely popular in crypto, called Paws Inu, P-A-W-S-I-N-U. And I always was just like, okay, like there's a million of these Inu coins every time there's a hack. Like for instance, like the Euler hacks we'll, we'll talk about. Literally 30 seconds later, there was an Euler hack Inu coin made. Um, I don't understand exactly why the Shiba Inu thing. But Paws Inu is very special because it's Uniswap backwards. Which I only I only realized, which is like, and it's it, that's ah, actually why its market cap so high. Yeah, that's like, why the market cap is so do- high is because <laughs> it's a, it's well, an <laughs> anagram of Uniswap. That's why the market cap so high. Yeah, you're I'm right. just I, Pause I, Eno is yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I had to type it to validate I, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh-huh. it's 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 one of these. So anyway, my point is these these markets aren't efficient. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that is the one that actually sounds efficient. Is that yeah, Uniswap in reverse should be worth a lot. <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, okay. I don't know. I don't know how to transition from from that, but uh, I think well, we ha- talked about the Euler hack. Euler hack. You knew. Should we talk? Should we talk about the Euler hack? Okay. Um, well, the the one the one thing that before we before we end this this saga of crypto banking, I mean, it's definitely the story is not over. Um, with the death of Signature and the death of Silvergate, it's very clear, regardless of whether you believe the story that there's a sort of Operation Choke Point 2.0 thing happening. Um, it is true that. Crypto has gotten significantly debanked over this week. We should see, especially with the death of Signature and Signet, um, you know, transactional banking in crypto, basically meaning like this 24-7 settlement stuff, has taken a huge hit. We no longer have a 24-7 settlement system for crypto. I, I would guess that probably something will pop up fairly soon that will, you know, step in to try to replace them. Well, cross uh, But for now, 
Uh, so Cross the River crossover. is that's right. So Cross River is the one that that seems to be uh, that Circle is going to start using as their transactional system. I think um, uh, Coinbase also uses them. Uh, J, uh, there's also JP Morgan, BNY Mellon that that uh, uh, also bank Coinbase, uh, sorry, Coinbase and Circle respectively. But a lot of banks may respond to this by saying like, "Wow, the bank graveyard is full of people who touch crypto. Maybe I should be more careful about touching this stuff." Um, and so my guess would be that startups are going to have a much tougher time getting banked by a lot of the big players after what we've seen over the last week. Um, there are a few banks that are crypto friendly, like Series, like Mercury, these sort of neo banks that are that are much smaller and more nimble. Um, but a lot of and there's also you know BCB Group and you know a number of other players in in Europe that are that are quite crypto friendly. But um, I think the banking story is going to be we're going to feel the reverberations of that for a while, especially when it comes to crypto companies you know, being able to on-ramp and off-ramp effectively. What, what's your guys' view on so, this? So I have a claim that, you know, in the same way that stable coins are a little bit like euro dollars, even though obviously because their accounts are held at these banks, they're, they are held locally, but they are a little bit like euro dollars in that their dollars sort of held on-chain if we view on-chain as like the foreign bank um, that people are trading. I, I've never understood one thing, which is like, when will it actually make sense for foreign banks to be custodying the dollars that back stablecoins? Like Tether does that, right? But we have no clue where they are. But imagine like a, a version of Circle where Circle opens Euro dollar accounts at, you know, Credit Suisse or something else. Maybe I should pick someone more solvent uh, at GCB <laughs> or something like that. Um, and they, they they store the dollars there. You wire to, to to Europe. I mean, obviously, still connect to SWIFT. And they just charge you a higher create redeem fee because, like, obviously, the, the costs for the European bank are higher. Uh, I, I'm surprised we haven't seen that. You know, like, somehow we focused on making euro stable coins, but why not just make the US dollar stable coin custodied outside the US and might actually just, like, avoid some of these issues? I don't know how much it would solve these issues. I mean, if, if anything, I think right now for US for, for USDC in particular, I think the reason why they they are um, why it makes sense for them to use you know US commercial banks is because so much of the role of USDC was to basically be as different as possible from Tether. Like if you were just using kind of Euro dollar banks, like it's kind of like okay, well, is this really that much better than Tether? Like how would I know? Whereas the fact that they use BNY Mellon and you know all these like very kind of stalwart banks. Um, is part of what makes them one more trustworthy, and that's kind of their branding is that like we're the more trustworthy stablecoin. But then also second, um, to the extent that they want to be the beneficiary of domestic stablecoin regulation, it's by being above board and you know you know being very squarely within the U.S. regulatory purview. I think that's pretty essential to their strategy, and and it seems wise to me at least for now. I'm just saying someone else could do it. You know, like Paxos now actually has very good reason to go do this because. They just lost. I mean, they, there's still quite a bit of BOSD, but my point is the growth story might not be there. Right? It, someone will do the euro dollar stablecoin. I just don't know who it's going to be. I mean, it's Tether, right? Tether is already it's, they're crushing it. Te- Tether is doing it. Uh, I I think like all of the new regulation. I think like the it, it was it the EU today released like the smart contract regulation that was like all smart contract developers have to include pauses in their transactions. What stuff like that to both of your points, actually, you know, it's like in, in, you know, these kinds of times, there's obviously like a, a flight to safety and, and flight to quality. And, you know, normally it would be a flight to USDC and then it would be like a flight to USD. In reality, like Tether was actually trading above a dollar, um, you know, doing a lot of this. People are trying to get out of USDC. And so there's clearly the demand for this like offshore dollar stable coinish thing. Maybe it could be a little bit more polished, but like, you know, I would argue that's probably like the most sort of senior safe thing in, in the market based on sort of what they're how the market's pricing it. Yeah, that that makes sense. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, I mean the one the, the sort of the last element of the story was that after we saw the bailout and an enormous amount of instability take place on Monday, you know, a bunch of runs on regional banks, a lot of lot of worry about smaller banks having their having massive deposit flight to the large banks. Um, you saw basically the, the, the kind of um, the, the, the embers of a banking crisis taking place in the U.S., a lot of fear about, is this going to spread like wildfire to all the regional banks? Um, and now the expectations for interest rates is that they're basically going to turn a corner before the end of the year. And interest rates are, are I think right now, the, the curve is pricing 
uh, they don't even hit 5% before rates start getting cut. So we're now looking at rate cuts before the end of the year, if the market is right. Um, and if that, uh, the, the other thing that you saw is you saw equity markets rally and you saw crypto absolutely rip. So Bitcoin was up like something like 18% in a single day, uh, which is one of the best days we've had in quite a while. And uh, crypto is still up today. Crypto, uh, uh, yeah, Bitcoin is up at 26K at the time of uh, us recording the show. And I think a lot of this is just in response to interest rates. Interest rates, I think, is what's driving most of it for crypto. Crypto massively outperformed um, the, the S&P or, or the NASDAQ. And actually now I just, you know, it's funny because I was just talking to uh, some investors here in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are like, oh, you know, since FTX, things are really bad. And I don't know if like this is investable anymore. And I was like, okay, hold on. I got to show you something. I pulled up TradingView and I charted Bitcoin versus the NASDAQ since the day before FTX collapsed. And actually in that time, the NASDAQ is up about like, I think it's like 6% and Bitcoin is up 18% since before FTX collapsed. So actually Bitcoin has outperformed the NASDAQ in that time, despite what you might read in the headlines, despite what's been going on globally in large part because Bitcoin and crypto generally is so responsive to interest rates. And uh, I think the, the change in expectation of interest rates, despite the fact that interest rates are higher now than they were at the time of FTX, um, crypto is just done, you know, just rallied massively over the last uh, 48 hours. So anyway, we, we, we don't have that much time left. So I want to make sure that we cover the story about Euler Finance. Um, so Euler Finance, uh, by the way, not Euler, it's pronounced Euler, uh, but it's, it's spelled like Euler. So if you, if, you, if, I, if you hear me say Euler, just imagine it's spelled Euler in your head. Um, so Euler Finance is a, uh, it's basically like a, you know, on-chain lending protocol. It's got some fancy, you know, tips and tricks and cool stuff it does that's a little bit, little bit uh, different and kind of more nouveau than uh, Compound and Aave. Uh, so, so Euler was hacked uh, over the weekend. And uh, let me see if I can explain this hack because I, I sort of read it very, very briefly. Tarun, please correct me if I'm wrong. But basically, um, the way that this hack worked was that uh, somebody, uh, basically they borrowed a bunch of a certain asset using a flash loan. And after borrowing a bunch of that asset, they then, uh, there's a function in the contract that allows you to donate the asset, like donate an asset to the contract for some reason. Like basically just say like, hey, I just want to give you this because I love you and you're great. Uh, and so they donated a bunch of the asset. And for whatever reason, this donate function did not check that this would not put you underwater and basically in default on your loan. And so they basically did this, forced themselves to become in default on the loan. And Euler does this fancy thing where if somebody is like really, really deeply in default, it gives a really big incentive for you to liquidate them. Because the idea is that if somebody's a little bit in default, you only need a little incentive to liquidate them. Uh, so, you know, a lot of protocols, like you know, the old school way to do this was that you just have a fixed percentage. So, you know, if you're, if you're, if you get liquidated, it's like 5% flat. It doesn't matter if you're like one iota in default, 5%, screw you, that's too bad. You got liquidated. Uh, whereas Euler does this like kind of floating thing. The more in default you are, the bigger the, the bigger the reward is. And so they, they put their own account into massive amounts of default using this bug in the donation function. And then they took another account and liquidated themselves, got this massive reward and made money uh, from the protocol. Is that uh, a, a fair understanding of how this exploit worked, Tarun? Yep. That, okay. That, that's a good description. Yeah. So they the stole- donation thing. My th my understanding is it's sort of like a dust collection feature. Um, like there are a lot of on Maker, there are a lot of CDPs that are heavily underwater that nobody is liquidating, and it just sort of accrue. And this sort of lets you sweep all that, you know, basically into the protocol. I see, I see. Okay, that's why that's there. So there was 183 million dollars stolen, which is a big hack. But I mean, I don't know. We're also <laughs> PTSD at this point that it's hard yeah. for anything to register. Uh, the, this donation, this donation thing was also something that uh, showed up in uh, in, in Ave when like sushi and X sushi diverged, um, and so like there's sort of it, it, there's actually no way of sort of preventing it um, for some annoying technical reasons. So it, they just happen to have an explicit function, but you could have just sent the money to the wallet that the pool is in. Um, so it's not, it's not, it's not, the function makes it sound like, oh, it was like a built-in feature that made it that do this, but there's a way to do it without explicitly calling it. So just wanted to point that out. But I think like one of the issues and, you know, I think, I, I, you know, while obviously most of the, the panic and fear and pandemonium of the last few days was people uh, talking about SVB, 
the second pandemonium I guess you saw on Twitter was a lot of people like flash loans are the devil and bad and there's sort of this trade off like how could we how could you know can we just ban them and I, I think crypto is this type of thing that's a one way function like a hash function like once you've unlocked something existing and people find productive uses for it even if there's bad uses people are not going to stop using it right like the, the code exists people know how to use it I mean people have been trying to uh, ban you know, flash loans, just sort of making these like moral arguments against them, basically since they were um, invented. And obviously the, the market is the market that people want them. They're extremely useful in many different scenarios just for making things more efficient. But some protocols do try to basically ban flash loans by preventing uh, smart contracts from using the protocol, right? You have to have an EOA to open a position or to trade or whatever. Um, but with the rise of account abstraction and uh, yeah, uh, 4337, you, you know, more and more people are going to be using a smart contract wallet. And so I bet those are going to have to get rolled back. And like the protocols that thought they were safe from flash loans are now going to be exposed and going to have to you know, figure out some way to harden their, their, their protocols going forward. Yeah, so I'm right now, uh, this, this reminds me a lot of people who, who talk about like when their market crashes, talk about banning short selling, right? It's, it's kind of the same like sort of, the same instinct that like, oh, if we just like stop this one thing that happens sometimes when bad things happen, that the bad things will stop happening. And ultimately, even if you ban flash loans, there are people who have enough money to go do this attack. You know, there aren't a ton, but, you know, uh, w- one way or another, you'll find a way if you have, uh, if you have an exploit, you'll find a way to, to actually exploit it. And so um, it's funny because right now I'm, I'm in the Middle East and I'm, I, haven't, I haven't spent much time here before. And, uh, you know, it's a weird place to be learning about all this stuff because the Middle East has its own version of crypto and its own version of all these different concepts uh, that are kind of filtered through Sharia law in a lot of these places. Uh, and I was learning about this, about like Sharia compliant DeFi, Sharia compliant, like, like, so it turns out like one of the, one of the rules in Sharia that I'm, I'm coming to understand is that interest is not allowed. You can't pay interest on anything. Right. And so if you want to do now, of course, like that doesn't mean there's no finance in Islamic countries. There obviously is, but they find ways to sort of mutate or like kind of grab this thing, put it over here and do something. You call it some other name, which I'm like, oh, that's like what DeFi does. <laughs> like that's like you like tokenize this one part of it and you give it a new name. And then it's like, oh, it's it's uh, DeFi innovation. Sorry, go ahead. You, you know, in 2019, when I first heard about Pool Together, which is a, a old school DeFi protocol that some of you may remember, it's sort of no loss lottery. Like you put in money, the protocol then takes the pool and puts it into compound takes the interest and then gives it away as a lottery winning to whoever deposited. Um, the Islamic bonds are the same way. They basically don't pay interest uniformly to all capital providers. They do it as a lottery and the lottery is not userous in, in, in by depending on which particular imam you're asking. Uh, there are obviously some that are like, this is all userous, get out of here. But there's some who will be like, no, 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 lottery is fine. It's fairer than distributing it uh, evenly because then it's not you're not really then you're then you're just charging for a service as an individual instead of uh, uh, pooling together capital to oppress the single borrower. Uh, so there's sort of a it, there's a lot of very funny stuff. I, I highly recommend reading about it more because, <laughs> yeah, I, I in in the in the deep uh, bear market last time another piece of uh, trivia is um, Virgil Griffith who was uh, arrested for. Uh, going, helping North Korea learn how to run Ethereum nodes um, was uh, famous for for going to the to I think it was Saudi Arabia maybe it was the UAE and getting the government to um, make Ethereum halal in some weird way like like it was like a totally like it's it's uh, like ETH staking was not viewed as uh, a userous endeavor. And so I think Ethereum so I actually learned al- about Algorand. This. I learned about this. Yeah, I was talking to somebody over dinner who's like an expert on um, like the, the the rules around Sharia, halal, haram for uh, for for proof of work. And so apparently, proof of work is halal, meaning that it's it's allowed because you are because you are you are uh, being paid for work. So actually, fiat money apparently is haram because fiat money you just like make it out of thin air. It's not made of anything valuable. So nobody worked to create fiat money. And that means that technically it's Haram. Now, no country is actually like that hardcore to actually ban fiat money. But technically, like imams will say like, yes, technically this is Haram. You shouldn't be using it, but whatever, you know, we got to live in the world. Um, and so in, in there, there are countries actually where they ban short selling, 
because short selling is haram, but so they find some other way to like do short selling, but vanilla short selling is, is not okay because of the interest that you're paying to the borrower uh, or that you're paying to the lender. Um, but so there's a, there's a, there's a huge project in the middle East that I'd never heard of until I came out here called Islamic coin and Islamic coin. They raised something like $400 million. And the whole idea behind Islamic coin is that it is a Sharia compliant Ethereum fork. And it's even no, 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 no. I think I, th- I think I thought it, but it is it is running as a tendermint chain. It's closer to Evmos or oh, wait, so or, you know about uh, this? You know about this? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, wait, very wait, famous, wait. very, very, very famous fundraise. Uh, partially because I think that uh, the one coin woman is somehow hidden in the yes, yeah, so it's the all Russians. Apparently, thing. it's like all Russians who are who are who are running it. And the whole idea, the way it was explained to me, is that uh, how so like how, how do you make a blockchain? Sharia compliant, like what does that even mean? And she's like, well, well, you know, the thing is, like, you don't know what people are doing on the blockchain. So there's a committee of, uh, like, there's a committee of sort of validators who are like, uh, you know, basically like imams, I guess, and they approve every smart contract that gets deployed onto the chain to check whether it's Sharia compliant, and only Sharia compliant contracts can be deployed, and then you can interact with those as you as you see fit. That's, I, as far as I understand, that's the core idea of. Islamic coin. So it, it just goes to show that the world of blockchain is a very, very big place. And I, I had no idea how much money there was chasing this stuff, but it's pretty massive. So anyway, that is totally irrelevant to Euler Finance, but I, I guess the reason why it was connected was like banning, uh, <laughs> banning flash loans, which I guess, because the reason why that came to me is that flash loans are only Sharia compliant if you don't have to pay fees. So only DYDX flash loans are Sharia compliant. But the other ones are not because you're paying, you put that on the website. They do need to put that on the website. I'll see if I can get Antonio well, to put that on DYDX. It, uh, it makes sense, though, you know, all this innovation because it's um, with like uh, Hawala networks, you know, where they do like the peer to peer payments. That was really the world's first sharded blockchain. And so, you know, it's out of that you have all this, this innovation. Um, it, it is true. Although Hawala, unfortunately, in the US, I would not say that around a TSA employee, just as a. Uh, a, a note for the those who are often harassed at uh, airport checkouts security yeah yeah okay so let's let, let's bring this conversation to a close uh we, we we've been through a lot it's been a really harrowing week what what do you guys think hey um, we're making is, jokes now come on uh, i know i know look I mean, <laughs> things are okay now things are okay now prices are up usdc is back you know we're back in business but I think the, the the moment of introspection, I think, for the industry, particularly is probably most around USDC. USDC was probably, for, you know, for the industry on the whole, the biggest kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, reality check about how much crypto is intertwined with traditional finance and how dependent we are still on the banks. And, um, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin blockchain, the very first Genesis block has inscribed into it, Chancellor on the brink of bailout for the, uh, was it? Chancellor on the second brink of bailout for the banks. It was literally when a bank was getting bailed out that Bitcoin was created. And once again, we have a bank getting bailed out, but this bank, instead of being the, the, the genesis moment of crypto, is actually showing the cracks in the thing that we've built. Um, and so how do you guys reflect on you know, the, the uh, lessons for crypto looking forward for how we get stronger from what happened over the last week? Well, I definitely think this is one of the great reminders for people about like why crypto even should exist. Um, so many sophisticated, well-intentioned people over the weekend had no idea if their money was going to be there come Monday. And that's mostly what Bitcoin and crypto assets were designed to present, prevent, which was this like uncertainty due to someone else having the control and not you as the user or the market participant. And I think it's a really loud reminder. The second thing that I think is vindicated and reaffirmed coming out of this weekend is, you know, all of these banks were being shut down because of opaqueness and uncertainty about their balance sheet and inability to trust management and all of these things. And we were sort of joking earlier in the show when we said like, oh, but DeFi fixes this, but it does, right? A DeFi protocol would have been able to present to regulators the radical transparency of knowing exactly what the, you know, health of the market was or the withdrawal queue or whatever it is, Right. And it really does prevent a lot of the same sort of issues that were at the heart of these bank failures. And so 
I see this as just a nice reminder and wake up call for everyone building in this space that we're headed in the right direction, even you know, if moment to moment, you know, it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, there was also a lot of sort of hand wringing over the weekend around, um, oh, you know, this is why we should have never, you know, used USDC and, and you know, makers going down the wrong path and having so much USDC exposure, everyone should use, you know, Rye or use Liquidity. Um, but it's like, you know, there's a reason why people don't, you know, use these things. There's a number of different, you know, protocol flaws, scale flaws, etc. But I'm, I'm hoping that some of that energy is funneled towards more I mean, effort around building, you know, decentralized stable coins or more diversified stable coins, or maybe even a true proper, you know, euro dollar stable coin or something like that. I think it's, it's not, uh, I think, very productive to uh, sort of like flash loans, sort of moralize around what you think people should do. And instead, ideally, you know, direct that efforts into um, more research and more building and, uh, you know, making the, the, making your vision a reality. Is that, is that a new term we're coining? Flash loan moralizing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there are, uh, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. It should just be flash moralizing because this used a flash loan and a flash mint. Because, you know, okay, we, okay. we should, we should, we should, we should, we should thank, just thank you, keep the thank flash. You for, thank you for clarifying that. Um, I think, the, yeah, I think my take is like, you know, I've never had all these people who hate crypto call me over the weekend and be like, man, I really hate the banks. And I'm like, man, do I have a product for you? Uh, but like, it was like, it was actually funny. All these people who like the, November 12th were just like texting me like haha fuck you like your this crypto sucks like AI is way better blah 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 <laughs> like people <laughs> like that all I will say a lot of them ate ate some humble pie this weekend um uh which you know I'm not trying to have the schadenfreude I'm just trying to say like you know you can't you can't just like immediately dump on crypto and then like suddenly be like oh no like what could ever solve the problem of solving DOS attacks against bank withdrawals, you know, like, so I don't know, I find that funny. But on the, I think the long-term thing is like, stuff like the Euler stuff, I think is, you know, I think, yeah, to, to Tom's point, there's a lot more like research into the types of mechanisms to build that we need to do. And a lot of that boils down to like some new technologies that a lot of people on the edge in this industry are working on that, you know, haven't made it to, to usage. But like those things, I think in the next, two to three years once they're live and in production should really help mitigate a lot of these kind of issues over time. Um, I, I think things like the Euler mishap are unfortunate, but they actually provide us a lot of really good lessons. And we have a lot of new technolo- technological tools that people have invested in and are getting to production scale that I think will be, you know, very useful for making sure that users can't do this to themselves and also that these protocols are, are able to add in new complex features without kind of introducing a larger attack surface area. Yeah, I think the the events of the last weekend, you know, crypto has this sometimes uh, overused, you know, uh, trope of banking the unbanked. And um, much to our chagrin, we found ourselves, we found ourselves unbanked over the weekend. And it's a very it's a very strange feeling to have money but not actually be able to access the money, not be able to do anything with the money. And the idea that, you know, for us, you know, a pretty, you know, a regulated financial firm, that our best option was to try to get the money into crypto as fast as we could. Um, I think is is telling of like where we're at right now with respect to the the evolution of of both uh you know the, the traditional financial system and of, of cryptocurrencies. The reality is right now the two systems need each other the two systems interplay with each other. And this is also often how I think about when people ask me like, Hey, do you think that DeFi is going to be, um, you know, you think that DeFi is going to like eat everything in finance? Like personally, I don't think so. I think that the two are going to sit side by side with each other, but a lot of what DeFi is fundamentally uh, good for right now today is that DeFi is sort of like a floor. It's a floor of financial connectivity and uh, usability. That's always there. It's always there everywhere in the world, 24 seven. And if your local banking system or your local financial system, which has a lot of things that DeFi can't do, right? It has uh, credit, it has, you know, it knows who you are, it has, you know, all this sort of, uh, this rich history that doesn't necessarily translate easily into a blockchain setting. Um, but there are times when like the, the normal financial system is like way up here and DeFi is like here. It's like this solid thing that is accessible always, everywhere, at all times. And sometimes your financial system is gonna just fucking, you know, drive into the ground and be totally unusable. And when that's there, you can always default back to DeFi. It's like this sort of, uh, it's this default that's always undergirding you as competition 
but also as a fallback. And uh, I think that that's true in a lot of places around the world where you see a lot of DeFi adoption. Today, it's because DeFi is here. And when DeFi is here and you've got a terrible financial system, DeFi is actually better than what you've got, right? Or if you've got, if you're, even if you're in the first world and you've got a failing financial system, yeah, DeFi is now better than what you've got. And as DeFi gets better and better, that floor is just going to rise. It's just going to rise and rise and rise every single year that we start building more and more stuff. But in the interim, DeFi is better as the sum of parts. It's, some, it's better with centralized stable coins, with real world assets, with you know, all these off-chain uh, you know, identity primitives that are being built. Um, it's going to get richer. It's going to get more robust over time, but we're not there yet. You know, and, and I think things like Euler Finance show us that there's going to be failures along the way and there's going to be, you know, learning moments. But ultimately, it's, um, I think, vindication, not that, we, not that we won, not that, okay, hey, this shows that this guy is better than that guy, but it shows that all this stuff is important. All this stuff is really important. Like, TradFi needs to get better, DeFi needs to get better, but both parts of this equation um, are important to, to what we should have as a human civilization going forward. Uh, and if that's if 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 that, it's that clear within America, then it's certainly true for for the entire world. So, all right, I guess I'll leave things there. The real <laughs> the real question is: Is the Sharia floor different than the non Sharia floor? And I leave that for 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 us to discover. Yeah, the Sharia floor the Sharia floor is that you leave your shoes at the door. You don't wear your shoes inside. That's that's the Sharia floor. So uh, anyway. We'll, we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Thank you, everybody. I, I know it's been a, a crazy week, and I hope we helped you understand a little better what was going on. Until next time, see you, everybody. <laughs>